Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. This episode is sponsored by Trainway Silks. You'll find the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. Choose from a rainbow of hand-dyed colors. Love natural? Their array of wild silk and silk blends provide choices beyond white. Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Anne Marrow. This episode, we actually spoke with someone within the Longthread Media family, Kate Larson, who's the editor of Spinoff and Piecework magazines. Kate works with us from her farm in Indiana, where she raises Border Lester sheep when she's not traveling on the road to teach. I know Kate so much through her work as an editor, but this was an opportunity to hear from her more as a crafter as well. So good morning, Kate. Thanks for joining us at this very busy time of year. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here with you. This is the time of year when all over magazines and TV, I see, oh, it's spring. Here's a picture of a lamb. But you don't have to look on TV. No, there are many of them bouncing around my backyard right this very minute. (laughs) And this is always the time of year where we have to say, Kate might need to duck out for a few minutes and take care of the lamb. (laughs) Is it an exciting and fun time of year? Is it a little scary or both? It is both. It really is because it's not until everyone is born and healthy enough to, you know, big enough to keep themselves out of trouble that you can really sleep at night. So yes, there's all the anticipation of baby hugs and you just don't know how things can go wrong and things do. So yeah, it's just a lot of feelings. Tell me about baby hugs. Oh, they're the best. Sheep hugs are just fantastic. No matter whether they're babies or they are adults, the little babies, oh, you can pick them up. And when they're teeny tiny, like a day or two old, they'll snuggle into you and they'll fall asleep. It's just the most precious thing. And I look forward to it so much every year. And it makes up for being awake. 24 hours a day for a month. (laughs) But those lambs then grow up and and they have their own way of interacting with you. And I have elderly sheep that come up and hide their face against my clothes or my legs. Or if I bend down, they'll hide in my shoulder. And so they they grow up, but they still like to, to snuggle. It's good. How long have you had sheep? I have had sheep for my whole life, but it's kind of come in ebbs and flows. The sheep that I have right now, I picked my starter flock, five bred ewes, about 15 years ago. And so that was when I got to choose what breed of sheep I was raising for the first time. Previous to that, I was growing up with sheep on on a farm. And you know, my very first memory is of a sheep meeting a little lamb about two and a half. And yeah, so after that, I I traveled and worked on other people's farms. And so 15 years ago, I got to pick my forever flock. And we've been quite happy ever since. I love hearing you talk about your sheep and what makes your sheep special. I think they are the smartest, most beautiful sheep in the world. (laughs) I know that that's a little biased. And everybody has their own perfect sheep. It's a little bit like 
love at first sight. There's just this perfect sheep shape in your mind. And when you meet them, it's the one. And that definitely was the case for me. And I was working on a farm in northern Vermont. And they had a flock of sheep that had started as Monadales. And they had worked with a number of different rams. And they were kind of a a hodgepodge crossbred. But they were perfectly suited to where they lived. So the specific breed in many flocks isn't as important as their ability to fit in the landscape and the management system. And these sheep were the smartest sheep that I had ever met. And the way that they grazed as a large group and moved through a pasture, you know, we put them into a new pasture and they would immediately run to the back. And then the group would split in half and they would go around the edges of the boundary. And we were doing intensive rotational grazing. So they got a new space like every week. So they knew exactly how much food they had before they started eating. And they were just remarkable. And that particular flock, when I met them, they were about 50% Lester, both Blueface Lester and Border Lester. And when I started looking for what breed I wanted to raise, which you know was a lifelong endeavor, but when I got serious about picking a flock, I went to a couple of shows, Maryland Sheep and Wool and the big livestock exposition that happens in Louisville, Kentucky each year. And the sheep that I recognized that intelligence in over and over were border lesters. And they're always looking you right in the eye. A lot of breeds of sheep that I've worked with that I feel like they see the human and the, you know, your boots are human, your face is human. And these sheep, they're always looking you square in the eye and they're watching for your cues and they like working with their shepherd and they give hugs. <laughs> when they've been in your arms since the very first day, that really is a lifelong rapport. It is. And it's the most important relationship in my life. And I get to share that with my husband as well. And so we both are with those animals every day of their lives and they trust us and we trust them. And we just have this great relationship as long as they are with us. You mentioned that how they fit into the landscape is really important. And your connection to your landscape is also really important. It is, yeah. So I live on a parcel of land that has been in my family since the 1930s, but it's adjacent to property that my family moved to in the 1860s. So we've been here for quite a long time. And the particular parcel that I live on was purchased with my great-grandmother's inheritance. So it was always called Sally's Place. So I live at Sally's Place and I love that she bought it with her own money (laughs) and uh, in the 30s. And previous to that, this particular piece of land was a village in one of the first villages in the area. It was called Slickville because we have so much clay that this was where they said, ah, yes, we need to make clay tiles there. (laughs) So there were large kilns here and a little village, a blacksmith shop, that kind of thing. And so this piece of property has had a lot of human impact and a lot of churning of the soil and intensive crop production for about 100 years. So much of what we are doing here with the sheep is increasing the fertility of the soil. We're putting it back into the soil. And that's a really important part of my life. 
I have a background in environmental soil chemistry. And so healing this landscape is is my life's work. I first met you as a spinner, and of course, you're the editor of Spinoff and Piecework. So I think of you in a textile realm. So this interesting connection to soil and grass and choosing the kinds of soil and the physical impact and the chemical impact, it's just this whole other dimension. Yeah. And it's so funny when I talk to people and they'll, it, to me, it's all one big thing. It's one big life. And then there's these aspects of it, like the hand spinning and teaching hand spinning. For me, that has everything to do with the sheep. But I, I meet people in various contexts where they may not think of it as cohesive. But I do try to talk about my sheep as much as possible <laughs> in all of my, in all of the parts of my life. So the, the hand spinning really came out of a way to help the sheep have purpose and, and to integrate that into my life. And I literally started teaching so that I could buy my flock someday. <laughs> so when you were picking your sheep, in addition to good looks and temperament, did the wool come into it? It did. Yeah. And I would say it kind of came in a roundabout way because my first spinning class was at a small shop in Southern Indiana called Sheep Street, which sadly is no longer with us, but it was a wonderful, wonderful place. And they had a whole wall with lots of big balls of undyed fiber, comb top, like we're used to seeing everywhere now, but even 20 years ago, it wasn't as common to see that in every shop that you went to or every festival. And the first fiber that I held that I was just, I couldn't speak. I was so amazed with it. It was Blue Face Lester. Like so many spinners have this reaction to Blue Face Lester. And so I started learning more about the sheep and where there were flocks near me and what types of conditions they thrive in. And that was about the time that I then went and moved to Vermont. And when I was working with that flock, and I also had a chance to talk with a shearer who had suggested that a cross between the two, Border Lester and Blueface Lester, were some of his favorite fleeces. Blueface Lesters have a very fine fleece. It's also not a fleece that covers as much of their bodies as some other breeds. They have clean necks and clean legs is how we would usually talk about it, meaning they don't have wool on their necks or legs. They have some wool on their neck. It's not like, you know, a turtleneck sweater or something, <laughs> but they don't have as much wool coverage. And so that can make it challenging for them to live in some colder places. I know now there are definitely flocks that live in very cold places. There's some fantastic flocks in Saskatchewan, for example. And those flocks, to my eye, tend to look a little bit more like border lester. So that's kind of where I was going. And the, the long wools, that silky luster was what I absolutely loved as a texture. It's, that's a lifelong texture thing for me, too. And so I started meeting those border lester flocks, and that was a better fit for me. Because what I wanted to do was start with genetics that were close to what I wanted and then work on it and make the sheep that fit for my management and the products that I wanted from them, which is by and large, the wool. So I would say after 12, 13 years of working on my flock and making selections for what I wanted to have, I started getting the sheep of my dreams. <laughs> so it takes a long time, but my sheep, the fleeces that I'm getting from them now 
are what I always wanted. One of the things that you did was to bring in color genetics. And at first, I didn't even know that there were colored border lusters. Yes. Yeah. And it wasn't all that long ago that there's two breed associations in the United States for border lusters. And it's only been in the last few years that they have allowed you to register natural color border lusters. And lusters come in white or black. And so, yeah, I bought a black lamb, ram lamb, and immediately started having lots of natural color animals in my flock. <laughs> lots of them. And all the ladies love Thomas the Ram. And much of my flock now looks just like Thomas the Ram. <laughs> Does the personality come through as well as the color? Do you have to look for a sweet boy as well as a, a handsome boy? I think so. And I have talked to other Lester breeders who have noted this as well. The Border Lesters, they tend to be very, really good at their jobs, <laughs> very serious about their jobs. And so they're wound a little tight. They can be very aggressive. I've found that it's like a switch that flips on in their brain. They're either fine and they are sweet and I can trust them or they cannot be trusted. And I've had a couple of cases of that where I've had rams that were not safe and I needed to send them along because they were too dangerous to have on the farm. But for the most part, they're just lovely gentlemen. So I, I definitely went to do a farm visit where I got Thomas, the, the black lamb, and watched how their sheep interacted. Were the farmers comfortable getting in the pen with their mature rams? <laughs> that kind of thing. Because uh, it is very inheritable. and. So yes, Thomas Thomas is one of the most laid back sheep I've ever ever had and his his offspring are just like him. I kind of wondered about that when you talked about how lambs just come and nuzzle into you. I've never been around a lamb. We had a we had a few sheep when I was a kid but they were older. But it always makes me a little nervous to be near baby animals, you know, do they need to be socialized? And it sounds like there is an inherent bond with you. Yeah. And you do have to watch it a little bit, especially with the ram lambs. You want to develop firm boundaries with them from the beginning. So they know that you're in charge, even when they grow up to be 350 pound <laughs> beasts, <laughs> that you want them to still respect your space. And so there's a little bit of a, a balance there with the boys in particular, but the, the weathers, which are the castrated males and any of the ewes, then you know, you can snuggle them all you want. But you're definitely, you know, the science of the animal behavior. And as we handle those babies, we are imprinting ourselves on them and vice versa. <laughs> so yeah, we're definitely creating a relationship. Now, one of the things that I've noticed is that at least among spinners, there's an assumption that you always want a covered fleece. And one of the things I've noticed about your sheep and when you mentioned that they they can be a little bit assertive, I thought, is that why you don't tend to coat your sheep or are there other reasons? So that, it's a really good question. And there are a lot of people who coat their fleeces and don't have any trouble with them. It depends quite a lot on wool type. So my flock of border lusters are, they have luster long wool fleeces and those tend to felt more readily on their bodies which is what we usually call cotting, C-O-T-T-I-N-G. And it usually doesn't cot down to their skin. It's like the middle of the staple of the wool. 
And so if you have the right conditions, a warm, wet spring day, like we're having here right this minute, and you have a coat that's creating agitation, it can just felt all the way around their little bodies, which is really hard to shear off as well, not to mention ruining the fleece. (laughs) So I do know that there are people who make it work. And uh, there's a fantastic flock of border lesters in northern Minnesota that I follow, and they only put coats on through the middle of the winter when they're most likely to be getting hay and eating out of round bales and things like that and getting dirty. I don't coat my sheep. What I usually tend to do is just try to be as careful as I can all year long. That combined with careful skirting. So when we shear, I take out the center line of the back, the wool that's right along the sheep's spine. And that's where most of the debris ends up on a long wool fleece that tends to part down the middle. And so, yeah, if I pull those key areas out of the fleeces, I can get away with not coating. And there's always this the stress for the farmer of not knowing what's happening under the coat. They could have um, something going on with their skin. They could have parasites, external parasites and things like that. So I choose not to. Never mind the stress of having to catch the sheep. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, because if you have, especially the types of breeds that are often coated for good reasons, like fine wool fleeces, because those can just get so dirty and you'll never get that chaff out again. Those fleeces grow so fast and grow so big. The staples go straight out of the skin all the way around. And so they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. So those coats often have to be changed three or four times in a year. So you have to have all those different size coats so you can keep giving each animal a larger coat. It's a big investment. So those those fleeces cost more for good reason. <laughs> Plus there's a whole sewing job. The sheep can tear a hole in it. And then in addition to coating your fleece, you have yes. to sew up the jacket. Yes. Yeah. Especially if you have horned sheep and they can like take their own coats off. <laughs> so you work not just with your wool, but wool from all over. And I have to say that as a spinner, you are probably the most productive spinner I have ever met, not just because of how much spinning you do, but then how much you do with the wool. You don't just have bins of a skein here and a skein there. You actually have projects that you have made with your wool. Yeah, and I really love seeing what they all do. And I'm definitely in all parts of my life someone who learns by doing it and making mistakes and learning like, well, something terrible went wrong. That's fascinating. And uh, using that to inform my work. I'm, I'm someone who needs to do the work to figure it out. And so talking about different breeds, different wools, you know, you can't talk about just Corydale. There's a huge range of fleece types that are Corydale. And what each of those does best and how they behave how they wear over long periods of time. So I tend to make whole projects instead of swatches. (laughs) So a whole project that then I wear the sweater out to see how it broke. What was the end result? So it's a slow way of of learning things. (laughs) And I think I, I saw you this spring at Red Alder. It was one of the first times that people have been out in public. There was one day when I'm pretty sure you had made everything that you were wearing from your top down to your skirt 
And not all of it was hand spun, but you had just made this entire wardrobe. And that has really, my work has changed quite a bit through the pandemic years. And I really, my favorite stress reliever is learning something new that I don't know anything about, something that seems impossible. (laughs) Um, And sewing my own clothes was something that I was always interested in. And what I would really like to do is make the cloth to make my clothes. And I finally, at the beginning of the pandemic, felt like, well, if I'm weaving the cloth, I'm not going to feel comfortable making just, you know, a top to see if it works. (laughs) There's a lot of time involved. And so I finally gave myself permission to just buy commercial cloth because you don't have to raise everything from the ground up, Kate, and (laughs) buy commercial cloth and just try it. You know, do what I do with things, cut out a shape, you know, try a pattern, see if it works. If it doesn't, keep wearing it. Sometimes you change your mind about it. And that pretty quickly evolved into hand sewing all of my own clothes. And I got very interested through my work on Peacework magazine in looking into historic hand stitches and plain sewing. Plain sewing is just so evocative. (laughs) Just the basic things that people before us learned at a young age that I didn't. And so I wanted to teach myself to do these things. And so it takes a lot of practice. (laughs) So after miles and miles of felling stitch, I feel more confident after several years that I can tackle those things. And so, yeah, Red Alder was the first time that I've been in public wearing (laughs) all of my own handmade clothes, looking like a, you know, a craft booth. It's just, it feels so different to move around in the world in clothes that I for me, it's not about making sure it's all handmade. It's about feeling like what I'm wearing did less harm. That's part of it as well. And so that kind of runs through my work as well. Raising sheep on the land that I do, I only have them here if they are improving the land. And making my own clothes makes me worry less about where my clothes came from. And it's been interesting to merge the two, picking dress patterns because I don't know how to make pants yet. So I'm wearing a lot of dresses these days. Dress patterns that will fit with my hand-spun, hand-knitted tops. And I've started doing some embroidery on linen fabrics with my hand-spun charka cotton. And that is just, uh, it just makes me really happy. There is something that gives a really tactile pleasure to just have the thread run through the cloth. And I'm only doing this on samplers and things like that. But I've watched you with little pieces of cloth and thread. And there's just something about feeling the fibers run past each other. It's so lovely. It is. There's really not anything quite like it. And as I'm doing it, I'm so frequently thinking of how this connects me to so many people. Whether you were doing it for pleasure or you were doing it because you had to get this thing done (laughs) by the time you needed to make lunch. But just that, that sensation of the thread passing through the cloth and wearing a thimble. Yeah, there's a lot of connection there. I find that doing a little of that in the morning when I'm drinking my tea and a little bit of that in the evening before I go to bed does add some nice bookends to my day. 
in a way that some of my other fiber arts don't. I would say that knitting and spinning both set my mind racing. I'm thinking about all the possibilities and I do my best brainstorming when I'm spinning by far. All of my best ideas <laughs> come when I'm spinning. But sewing, I mean, it's like turning my brain off and I have needed that in my life. I think a lot of people uh, need that little bit in their life. You mentioned your charka spun cotton. In some ways, that seems like such a departure from wool and spinning that connects you to the soil. But what is it about spinning cotton that has really gotten your interest? I would say that one felt like a departure for me as well. I felt like it was something I really wanted to spend more time getting better at. My previous attempts before 2015, I would say uh, spinning cotton, I could make a decent yarn, but it didn't make me happy to spin in the way that wool did. And I usually feel like that's something that I need to just like work on. <laughs> when I come across those things in my practice, it's an opportunity to understand something better. So I got a charka and took a charka class and it opened up this whole other world for me. And kind of like hand sewing, like the rhythms in your body as you're doing it feel so different. And the way that you have to respond to the cotton as you're drafting, it is unlike sitting at a spinning wheel and spinning wool. And I think that's often why people like myself that learn to spin by sitting at a wheel with wool or a spindle even, it'll feel so foreign and you can't react in the same way. Like if you see a slub, if you have a thick spot or it gets too thin, your quick reactions need to be very different. And I won't go down that rabbit hole of explaining <laughs> what that means, but but just you you need to be more considerate of the fiber as it's being turned into yarn because it's so short and it needs so much twist. And with a charka, you have one hand that's moving at a speed in one direction and you're drafting perpendicular to that at a different speed. And both of your hands are doing very different jobs. And I find that that's often what makes me feel very relaxed. Knitting with two colors of yarn with color stranding does the same thing for me. It's occupying both parts of your brain as you're, uh, you're working. And it's calming. And so I think that there is just so much truth to that, that logic that we come to in India of we all did some of this each day. We would be better people and the world would be a better place. <laughs> I do agree with that. So I started my daily charka practice in 2016, I would say. And I have not always been able to keep that up each and every day. And that's another thing too. Being too rigid in your craft is can be harmful, <laughs> I find, for me. So rather than judging, I just try to keep coming back to it and making space for that. And I... I have been absolutely delighted to find how useful my hand-spun cotton yarns are beyond weaving. I love embroidering with my hand-spun cotton. I love knitting with it. And I have just been so amazed at how hand-spun cotton behaves so differently than mill-spun cotton yarns that you would purchase at, at the yarn store, even really, really nice ones. Uh, but hand-spun cotton has a resiliency that I haven't experienced in a commercial yarn. 
So knitting large shawls out of hand spun cotton, I would have said, oh, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) And it works. It works. And Melvinia Hodges has been a great inspiration for me there. And you can follow her online at Traditions and Cloth. And she does incredible work growing cotton in a place you shouldn't be able to. <laughs> She's growing cotton in Chicago. And I know that you've, you've interviewed her here on the podcast and she's a great inspiration to me. Yeah, because the conventional wisdom among spinners is that cotton is no fun to spin. It's hard to spin, but you have actually found it to be fun to spin. Yes. And I would say it took me some time. And I love teaching other people to spin cotton. And helping them kind of have a a shorter course to get to the fun part than I found. And there are some key pieces of of advice with cotton. Like if you're spinning sliver, spinning from one end, the fiber will draft easily. If you spin it from the other, it will not. It will stop you dead in your tracks. And I had some cotton that I was trying to spin that just was compacted and not easy to spin. And it wasn't me. It was the fiber. So there's things like that that can really help you get to the fun part faster. And so even when I'm teaching bull breeds, I'll often have my charka and entice people to give it a try. (laughs) And you taught a charka class this fall at SOAR. And there were so many people who left the class and went and tried to buy charkas. Even in some cases, one of our colleagues who has never actually spun before. (laughs) Yes, she did great. Yeah. I, I really love beginning charka classes because there's such a mix of people who have just been curious and not really touched one yet, combined with people who bought one 20 years ago and it's been in the back of a closet because they couldn't make it work. They often need a lot of love. I often say they're like little animals. It's like having a little pet and you listen to their noises and they just they require more adjustment, most of them. There's some really nice, very finely tuned charkas on the market that don't need as much love and care. They spin out of the box. The older style classic box charka or especially book charkas, they just they need some love. When you've spun on them for a while, they settle in and they're easier to use. And there's some little tips of where to oil, how to oil, adjusting the different pieces because they're not locked into place like a spinning wheel. Everything's mobile. I watched you fall in love more with the charka and develop an interest in it and start thinking about how to teach it. One of the things I found so interesting is that it's not enough to know how to do something as a teacher. So watching you go through the process of developing the class was so enlightening. Yeah. There's a lot of problem solving that has to go on as an instructor behind the scenes in terms of figuring out where people are coming from. So a big piece of it is just going back and remembering what it was like to not know what to do with this cotton sliver. And it feels so different than wool. And your first reactions, if you're spinning, you know, you might pull too hard and it just keeps breaking over and over. With cotton on charka, I think it's It's a little bit like learning to spin all over again, like being a beginning spinner, where you're having to learn the body movements and the drafting, the different parts of your body doing different jobs and getting all of that to come together. So 
it's not the same as learning to spin just a new fiber on a tool you already have some comfort level with. So yeah, I would say that that has been one of the most challenging classes for me to figure out how to make it as smooth and successful as possible for students because you don't want to sit in the the space where you're uncomfortable with learning for very long when you're in a workshop you have to do that with all of these tools you have to go home and just sit with it and sit in that uncomfortable learning space with all that tension of do i really want to be doing this <laughs> why am i doing this <laughs> and and feeling like you're far away from what you want to be producing so that's an important part of the process but we are doing this for fun we are so lucky in our lives to be able to, most of us at this point, be able to do this for fun, not to clothe our many children and our families or earn our living in this way. So to try and make it as smooth as possible, but also let people make the mistakes that you have to make in order to learn how to get unstuck when you go home. But it's as smooth as possible for the student. And the student is there to have fun, but there's all that preparation for you as a teacher. I was thinking about how there were a few people who were doing beautiful work. And I asked them, could you teach that at SOAR? And they had to tell me, I can't just walk into a classroom and have people sit around me and do what I do. There's a lot of preparation involved, not only in terms of thinking through how to do it, but how to present the information and how the student can have that experience you're talking about of feeling successful within the course of the class. There is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. And I would say for me, and it may be this way for other instructors as well, I would say there's equal parts physical work of making the handouts and making kits, ordering fibers, making samples, those things. The other side of that work is just time thinking it through, thinking through each of the steps. I'm not someone who makes very rigid plans for how how a class needs to progress and exactly what I need to talk about at each stage. For me, it's more about flow and figuring out, you know, point A to point B and what are our stops along the way and just what people need to know. What are the things that they'll really be getting depending on where they're coming from? And I think that's one of the biggest challenges with spinning classes is that there's no specific trajectory to your learning. You know, you may be an accomplished cotton spinner, but you've never sat down and spun a long wool comb top. So you have a huge mix of experience levels and skill levels, and those may be two different things. So when you're teaching a class, uh, like in a couple of weeks, I'll be teaching spinning a sound singles and the three lesters. So there will be beginning spinners and there will be very experienced spinners and everybody needs to get something new from a workshop. So yeah, there's a lot of thought and detail that goes into it. And hopefully it comes off as effortless <laughs> for the student. Yeah, that's the thing. If it works, we don't necessarily notice all the work that you've done. And you're just starting to get out again after a couple of years of not going into the classroom and being present that way. What's that like? I would describe it as stressful. <laughs> like most most things that people are processing right now, just going back to the things that we used to do and they are different as they need to be and we are different 
and our students are different. And I think it'll just take some time for everyone to find our new way of fitting together and how we all get together in a space, that physicality of workshops and learning together. I think that it will be good. I think it'll be as as wonderful as it was before. It'll just be different. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing people in person. I think maybe we all have a better understanding of what we weren't getting in the last few years and be able to really identify what it is that we want to grab with both hands and take home with us. One of the things I love most about being at festivals and conferences and just meeting people in in the vending hall at events is learning what other people are passionate about. And that's often how I've been connecting with a lot of our future authors for both Peacework and Spinoff. And I just love meeting people and, and hearing their stories. And so that's really what we rely on for both of those publications is authors who come to us or I learn something fascinating about them and ask them to write for us about things that they have done a deep dive on, something that just caught their interest and and they went with it, like cocoon tassels from Laos <laughs> or certain types of dyeing techniques for spinoff. Or uh, we have an upcoming article about slubs from Riley Cleave, who just felt like they needed to learn more about slubs and <laughs> slub yarns and spun yarns and did a deep dive. So yeah, I'm always looking to meet those authors. I also love hearing from them. So if you're listening and you have a fascination <laughs> with something, you know, we're always, always excited to hear from people with proposals for upcoming issues. And the calls for submissions are usually on our website. We actually have a separate email list where if somebody writes to us and says, I'd like to be on your call for submissions list, we email out when we have a new issue that needs articles. Yes. And we'll offer the upcoming theme and a little bit of a, some prompts, some writing prompts for those themes. But we're always happy to hear about anything. I'm always planning several issues of each publication in advance. And so there's often a good spot for those, those solid ideas. So yes, you can go to our website. You can let us know if you'd like to be on the list. And those are also posted on our website and it will take you to a submissions form. A few years ago with Peacework, we felt that we didn't want to be too restrictive. And so we moved away from having themes at all. But then it turned out that the writers really liked having sort of a kernel or a seed to build an idea around. So when you write your themes, they tend to have a few different interpretations so that people could take it in a couple different directions. I really like offering that. It's a little bit of a Rorschach. You know, how do you, how do you what does this strike you as? Uh, like we had the piecework closure issue. Uh, so we had people writing about textiles used in death ritual and closure of childhood and moving into adulthood with dowry textiles. And then we also had buttons and snaps and uh, zippers. And I love putting together those collections of ideas so that it's not a tight theme, but it is something that there's a thread that runs through. Spinoff, because there's so much how-to in spinoff, it tends to be more closely clustered around a theme, but 
I try to push that as far as possible. So like the upcoming winter issue, winter 2023, which comes out at the end of 2022, that theme will be memory. And so the prompts I was giving, I want to hear about bouncy merino, and I want to hear about what your antique wheel means to you and all those types of things. And we'll have some articles about spinning traditions, long, long-term spinning traditions and how those are passed down in different parts of the world. For both publications, one of my main goals has always been to include as many communities around the world, as many perspectives as we can find. And that's easier than ever with our connectivity. And those stories from communities that I am less familiar with are sometimes harder to reach. And we're always trying to find those stories we haven't heard yet. We've been talking a lot about spinning classes. I've heard that one of your most popular classes is a class on dorset buttons. Now, I had never heard of dorset buttons, but when you teach it, it's very popular. Can you tell me about dorset buttons? I love dorset buttons. (laughs) So dorset buttons are thread-wound buttons from the south of England. There were different types of buttons that were made in the UK in different regions. And dorset buttons tend to be the ones that we know most readily by name. And dorset is in Southern England. And starting in the 1600s, there was someone who was starting a a business making thread wound buttons. And that means that you take something. Uh, Later, it was a metal ring. And that's what we recognize as the classic dorset button today. But Previously to that, it was little flakes of horn, and you would wrap it with cloth and thread, or it might have been a small piece of wood. There were different types of ways that those buttons were made. But by the time it got into the Jane Austen era (laughs) and into the 19th century, those buttons were made around a metal ring. So you'd take a, a small metal ring that was the size of the button you wanted to make, And you start winding thread around it in different patterns. And different families would have different patterns. Different patterns were associated with different types of garments. There was a classic one called an old dorset button. That's one of my very favorites. It's not a hard one to make. But you take the metal ring and you do a buttonhole stitch like you would uh, with embroidery around the ring, all the way around. That's the most time-consuming part of it. Uh, and you're working with linen thread traditionally. And then once you have that, that metal ring wrapped in stitches, you can start laying longer threads all the way across from one side of the ring to the other. And an old dorset just has as many spokes as you can get wrapped around that. And then they are connected in the center where you have a little hub. And that was a type of button that was made for everyday wear. and. There's some great resources online for these buttons. There's someone that I have been following for quite a while named Anna McDowell, and she is Henry's Buttons. And she's in Shaftesbury in Dorset, where the Dorset button industry was was centered. And she does buttons for films and things as well. So the Far From the Matting Crowd film that came out a number of years ago had Dorset buttons made by Anna McDowell featured in it. It very exciting. As a Thomas Hardy fan, which is where Thomas the Ram gets his name, I think Dorset buttons are amazing. It's been a really fun class to offer 
in conjunction with the other spinning and knitting classes that I offer, because you don't have to have any skills, don't have to have any materials to make these buttons. You can just walk in and learn. And so it's been a lot of fun to have these low key classes for people that maybe didn't want to travel with a spinning wheel or they aren't a spinner and they came along to a festival with a spinner or a conference. They're just wonderful. And you can make whole sets of these buttons for your hand knitted sweaters and things when you can't find the perfect button to match. (laughs) You know, the way you're talking reminds me of the most recent issue of Piecework, which just landed on my desk, which is all about embellishment and adornment and all the things we do to make ourselves pretty fancy. You talked about the joy of plain sewing, but there's also a joy of making something that's just a little extra. Yes, the fancy work. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And that issue of piecework was so much fun to work on. And there's a lot about beaded knits in there. And those are my favorite types of piecework topics because it's something that can look so modern, but it has this long history. And we can look back at where that came from. We can trace what we're doing right now back as far as we can and see how it started what were people doing with this? And the cover project is a knitted shawl that uses beads from Carolyn Wyborny. And she used several different Weldon's practical needlework stitches in the design. And I just love going back and looking at Weldon's because there's some wacky stuff <laughs> in Weldon's. <laughs> and so they may have been doing beaded knits, but what were they doing with them? <laughs> it's just fascinating. You know, and you talk about the Dorset Buttons, which is named after a place. But even with all of these embellishments, there are so many that are connected to different places. And Dorset is obviously a place in England, but there are places all over the world making beautiful buttons in Morocco out of thread. What are some of your favorites? Oh, that's a good question. I like them all. (laughs) I know that's not a very helpful answer. There's just so many fascinating things everywhere. And the thing that I love best is seeing how people use what's around them in unique ways. So you pick up what happens to be plentiful where you live and not being used for something else and make it into something beautiful. And makes me think in Shetland, you know, where a lot of the finest lace was made from the wool that grows up around the little sheep's faces, which is often the dirtiest matted wool because it's right up next to where they've been eating. And so they stick their heads in places, you know, to like find the most delicious bits and pieces. That wool is gross. And so you carefully clean it and it is the finest wool on their bodies and you can make the most gorgeous shawls. So using these raw materials to make something beautiful and adorn ourselves is is really special. Also in that issue, there was an article by Dr. Anna-Marie Hatcher about porcupine quills in indigenous Canadian culture. And then Linda Ligon talked about how her very favorite cocoons on her Lao silk shawl are from the little bits that had to be cut to let the little worms out. And so you have this beautiful piece of silk that you can't reel. What shall we do with it? Well, we'll make it something decorative. Yes, I just love it. And those tassels. Yes, so they're these cocoons that have to be allowed to hatch. Uh, So the worm comes out and they have been making them into tassels for gorgeous hand-woven textiles. And 
who knew? And the porcupine quill article is fantastic. It is so wonderful. Anna Marie talks quite a bit about how the porcupine quills were dyed and then worked into different patterns. And uh, we were so excited to be able to work with some knowledge keepers from the indigenous community that we were discussing. And they helped us with some pronunciations for the article because we always want to get it as as right, even in our heads <laughs> as we're as we're reading. Speaking of dying, you do a lot of natural dying, but in a very low key way. I hear that you just like, oh, I just have a matter pot on. I think I'll just put something in it. That really is my my approach with natural dying. I've kind of tried to make sure that I stay at that level because there's so much to know about natural dying. It is so deep and wide and it's a lifetime of learning. Just pick one natural dye and it could be a lifetime of work. And I'm out of space for lifetimes of work (laughs) right now. And I also, I want to be able to give myself permission to just see what happens. And so matter is something that I adore. And so I'm going to start planting some matter. And so I see that as probably my my next deep dive and how many colors can we get out of it and changing the pH. And I have enough of a chemistry background to get myself in trouble. And then there's indigo. Like, how can you not spend all your time working on indigo too? So And then that just connects so well with raising all these sheep and making my clothes. Everything I make has to go in an indigo pot, right? (sighs) Yeah. Yes. So one of the things that you've been doing since you've been at home over the last couple of years is you've taken a much more active role in shearing. Yes. Yes. I have a a wonderful shearer who worked on my flock for many years, and uh, she is also a lab technician at a hospital and was not able to continue shearing during the pandemic. So yes, I did a shearing school when I was living in Vermont years ago. So I know how to do it. That is not the same as doing it. (laughs) A lot of shearers will say like your first 200 sheep are practice kind of thing. I mean, it's, (laughs) it is such a skill and I've got like, 40 sheep. So that would be quite a few years of <laughs> practicing. So what what my husband and I do, we bought a couple of shearing handsets and we do them standing up, which is a good fit for my sheep. The main reason that sheep are set down on their rear ends to be sheared, like a, a real shearer knows how to do, is to tighten their hide. You can roll them around and make sure that their skin is tight where the shears are going over so they don't get cut. My sheep are a tight hided sheep and they also get as much to eat as they want. So they're not skinny sheep. And so they're safe to do standing up. And so I hold my sheep and tell them they're pretty and how much I love them and give them something to eat while my husband shears them. (laughs) So it is a very slow way of shearing. And I would still be using my wonderful, very, very experienced year if it wasn't for the COVID years. But this has been working for us. So there's many ways that the world shutting down impacts people in different ways. And that was one of them for us was we had to start doing all of our own shearing. And so that became an every weekend project for a lot of weekends. 
And at first I thought, oh, Kate, you'll have so much time. You're not traveling to teach anymore. And you were like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But I have to say, I, I've really come to enjoy it. And I get to spend 40 minutes with just one of my sheep. And I can look them all over, look underneath them, see if they have something going on that I didn't know about, look at their feet. And it's, I don't know, it's just been, I, I wouldn't spend 40 minutes looking one sheep in the eye <laughs> if, if we weren't doing this shearing way we're doing it. And I was also concerned at first that our fleece quality would go down with second cuts and because we are not professional shearers. But I have to say, with with a little bit of practice, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And we've found different ways around it. You know, there's some shears that are uh, the blades that are more dangerous, but cut faster and better. And then other shears that are the opposite and are like safety scissors, basically. <laughs> and so, so we use both. And so we can move back and forth between them. So when we're shearing their bellies or something that's a little more dangerous, like you might cut them, then we have our safety scissor blades <laughs> that we can pull out. So it's working for us. And so we're able to really reduce the number of second cuts. And yeah, it's, it's just a slowing down of pretty much everything right now. But sometimes that's okay. But the one thing that's not slowing down is lambing because you had something like what was it, six lambs in a day? Yes, in like a 36-hour window, yeah. So border lesters, more than some other breeds, tend to cluster when they become pregnant. And some breeds of sheep, you can have them get pregnant at any time of the year. Some of them only get pregnant in the spring, but it'll be early. Like a lot of people are well done with lambing by February. Border lesters tend to not breed out of season. They tend to not have lambs earlier in the year. Uh, so my lambs come in April and they tend to all come at once. So last year I had 16 lambs born and they came in like a four day period. And so everybody lambs all at once. And this was a very, very small lambing group for me this year with only four ewes. And yeah, we just have one one lady left to go. So we had triplets, a set of twins, and a single all at once. <laughs> <laughs> that must be very stressful, but whew, what a relief that you have, you know, six good, healthy lambs. It is. Yeah. And our strategy for keeping as many different genetic lines going in the flock as possible while not producing that many lambs each year is I have two separate lambing groups and they alternate years. And that allows me to keep more mothers in productive shape than I want to have lambing each year. So every lambing year is a little different <laughs> because uh, it's a different group of, of ewes. And this particular group was two inexperienced girls and two very experienced girls. So it's a nice balance. Well, we always love seeing the new lamb pictures. You graciously allowed our readers to name one of your lambs a few years ago. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And she was a sweet little girl. And everybody decided on Molly. We put her, Molly's little shining face up on Instagram and everybody weighed in. That was two years ago. So Molly just had her first lambs this year. It all went very well. And she has adorable babies that look 
just like her, little girl and a little boy, and they don't have names yet. So maybe we'll have to make it a tradition. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kate, I will let you get back to waiting for your lambs and working on your issues. It's so nice to talk to you outside of our normal work routine. Thanks for making the time. Thank you so much, Anne. It was great to be here. Thanks to Treenway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. <laughs>